All right, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. Grace Bible Church is a church where every week we open up the Bible and we focus our time on learning from the scriptures because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, just to kind of give you a plan for where we're going for the next few weeks. Uh, We'll do three weeks of topical sermons as we kind of get ourselves into a new year. Today we're talking about what it means to remodel our homes, and I'm going to be speaking more than just physically remodeling our homes, but what does the Scripture have to say about modeling our homes on Christ, building on the foundation of who He is? Next week, we're going to look at the sanctity of human life. We're going to be thinking about life in the womb and how God loves people, and that, uh, to borrow a phrase from Dr. Seuss, a person is a person no matter how small. Um, The following week, we're going to take the time around Martin Luther King Day to think about race, ethnicity, tribalism, and how God calls us to true unity in Jesus. And so that's where we're going for the next three weeks. After that, we're going to study the book of Jude. How many of you have studied the book of Jude before? I've never gotten to preach the book of Jude, so I'm excited about this. This will be a first time for me to teach it. Um, Jude has the central verse that talks about contending for the faith, the idea of Um, struggling, striving, fighting for what is important to hold on to what is true. And so we're going to have this theme for a few weeks as we study Jude of what's worth fighting for in a world that's full of division and seems like we're always fighting about the wrong things. What are the good things that we should fight for? And then we're going to study the book of Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, you've got this great theme of partnership. Uh, The Greek word is koinonia, it's fellowship, it's buying in participating in the work of the gospel. And so we're going to enjoy that for the rest of our spring semester. So that's kind of where we're going for the next several weeks. Today, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6, how to remodel our homes. 2020 has been a really weird year. Many of us have been home more than ever before. I heard uh, lectures years ago that was talking about family life and how the world we live in is a little bit artificial because in most times... And in most places throughout history, the family business was based out of the family home. And it's really a peculiar time in history that we live where most people now, at least in our culture, work outside of the home. That's very unusual throughout world history. And so as we've returned to our homes a lot more in 2020 because of the pandemic, we've actually returned back to what normal life was more like throughout history. And we want to think about what kind of homes do we want to have? I picked up my sister from the airport for Christmas, and we were talking about how she's been working at home every day. And she said, you know, I just bought this house, and I started remodeling this house, and then I had to come home for work. You know, I probably would have remodeled the house differently if I'd known how much I would have to use it for work. Anybody been working at home some this year, some of you? A lot of you are in the military, so you, you, know, you don't get to do that as much. But even some soldiers have been working from home. Well, I want to take us beyond the physical space of our home and take us to a bigger meaning that the Bible gives to homes and houses. So the word has two meanings in Scripture. There's the physical building, right? You want to have a home that keeps the rain off of you, keeps the snow, keeps the sun off of you. That's the basic structure. But house and home has a bigger meaning. It's the description of a culture that we establish. We all have a home culture. The question for 2021 that I want us to consider is what are we building culturally? 
what kind of following of Jesus are we building in our personal life, our family life, with our friends, with our neighbors? What's your sphere of influence that you impact? This passage in Deuteronomy 6 is going to talk very specifically about families and children. Some of you don't have children, or some of you, your children are grown. You still have a responsibility to pay attention and think about what does it mean for me to build a sphere of influence by which I'm going to follow Jesus and impact others in the world around me? That's really the question for 2021 and the question as we look at this passage. So I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 6. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 9 to try to keep this simple and focused, but I really want to recommend this whole section to you. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 are really fantastic. Deuteronomy in the five books of Moses is kind of here at the end, and it's the second generation of people because the first generation that God rescued in the Exodus story, he miraculously rescued them, but then they said they still didn't trust him. He rescued them. He said, I've saved you. Now follow me. And they were like, no, we don't think we trust you. So what then happened in these books is he said, okay, well, this generation is going to die and not go into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness without me because you don't trust me. And then the next generation will actually enter the promised land. So Deuteronomy, to put it in context for you, is a coming back. The word Deuteronomy in Greek literally means second law. It's a coming back to God's instruction saying, okay, second generation, we got to get this right. We're starting fresh. Because it's a new year time, I think it's a good place for us to start, to say, okay, we got to get this straight. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to be saved by Him and then to obey Him? That's, that's the order of Scripture. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Let me pray for us. We'll stop there. As I said, there's so much more good stuff here. Read it this week if you get a chance. Um, But let me pray and ask God to help us. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would speak to us as we uncover your word, as we look at it together. Help us to remember that it's, it's you, that you are speaking to us. We pray that your spirit would be present here to open our minds and hearts, that we would pay attention, that we would hear as your people what you have to say to us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is to remodel our homes. And again, I'm talking more culturally than physically. I've done a lot of home remodeling, and frankly, you don't want to hear from me how to remodel your home physically. I've, I've made every mistake in the book. But we want to look at the Scripture and say, what does God have to say to us about building a culture, a house, a legacy, a, a dynasty, if you will. And we've got three simple points I want to charge us with. Number one is that we would love God first. Saw that in verses four, five, and six. Love God first. That's the first idea. Second idea will be teach your people. Teach your people. Here it's talking about children. If you got kids, it's easy. Those are your people, okay? Problem solved. 
For the rest of us, we have an empty nest. Some of you maybe never had kids. Some of you are in a different situation. Who are your people? That's a question we're going to have to ask, but teach your people. The third one, the third point, the third emphasis is then reinforce with structure. Build structures to reinforce all that God is calling you to, okay? So the first one, love God first. This is the foundation, if you will, to this remodel project. Uh, A lot of times this is referred to as the great Shema because the Hebrew word Shema is here. So hear, O Israel, pay attention, hear. Listen to what God is telling you. This is like their creed. This is kind of, uh, sometimes you would say this is like the statement of faith for the Jewish people. Hear this. Pay attention. What does he have to say in verse 4? Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I want you to pay attention to something in the text here. This will help you. A lot of you already know this or you've seen this in the notes. But when it's all capital, L-O-R-D, do you know what that represents in the Hebrew text in the Old Testament and our English translations? That's the very personal covenant name of God, sometimes pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh, uh, Jehovah is another way that that's pronounced. This is the personal name of God. And so a way to think about it is God is like a being, right? When we refer to God, we, we know in English, well, we have our God who we believe to be the true God, but someone else could use the term God to mean some other kind of being. In that sense, it's a title, uh, it's a generic kind of word, meaning this kind of being. But Yahweh, Jehovah, that's a very specific name for a specific person, personal covenantal God. And so here in the text, he's saying, Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. Many other commentators believe that this goes beyond just saying he is one, unified, there's just one of him, but even more so, he alone is God. More like Yahweh is the only one, right? And so this is a little hard for our brains to deal with because the scriptures say this in two different ways. And this is just basic to Bible study. When you hear one thing one way and you hear one thing another way, you have to say, okay, well, with respect to what is it being said? You know, like what's the context here? And so on the one hand, there are many gods. And on the other hand, there is only one God. And you have to say, well, well, how? How How are both of those true? Well, on the one hand, there are many gods in the sense of powerful spiritual beings. Now, we would translate that as like angels and demons and and things like that. There are powers in the universe beyond what we know as human beings. There are also powers and principles that we pretend are gods, right? And so they aren't even spiritual beings, but they're things like saving your money and, you know, being frugal and being a good person or having a good relationship. Those are kind of just things in life that we think will make us secure, and we can make those into spiritual powers in a sense. And so there are spiritual beings that aren't really the true God. And then there are these just principles we live by that we can try to make into spiritual powers in life. So those are a variety of false gods or substitute gods. And then there's this other sense that, but God is the only true creator of the universe, the one true God. In Christianity, we have a doctrine that's important to know. It's called the Trinity, which means there is one God and three persons. One what and three whos is the way I've learned to remember that. So we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we would say that God is one and the only true God, but he is also three persons. And that's, that's a hard thing for us to understand. Here, what we're being called on 
to is to see that there's, there's one true God. There are all these other competing gods that might try to promise us salvation. Sometimes we refer to these as functional saviors, right? A job might tell you, I can save you if you have the right job. And then you work that job and you realize that's a failed savior. It can't really save me. Or money promises, I can save you. Have enough money, I can save you. And then we realize I'm just a slave to money. It can't really save me. Those are false saviors or bad functional saviors that we live with. Here, we're called to love and trust Yahweh, the true God. Another interesting thing that I wish I had more time to communicate for you, but, but Jesus is Yahweh. Romans 10.13 is, is an easy quote. Romans 10.13, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's a quote from Joel 2.32. That's a quote of Yahweh, Jehovah. Everyone who calls on the name of this God will be saved. And Paul is applying that to Jesus. So we've got a unity. Sometimes it's the unity in the Godhead is this kind of fancy term we use for that. A unity of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. He's the one that we place our faith in. And here in verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This goes along with the same things that Jesus said when he was walking the earth. Last week, Joey Colon, our assistant pastor, did a fantastic job teaching from Luke. Right? We had this beautiful restatement of this by Jesus. And if you haven't heard that sermon yet, I encourage you to go listen to that sermon. He did a really good job working us through this text. So I'm going to try not to cover too much of the same ground. But here, we're going back now to these Old Testament roots where this This was first taught. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so Joey helped us to understand. So then salvation is found in us simply loving God perfectly all the time. That's all you have to do to be saved, right? (laughs) Jesus made that pretty clear. The bad news is none of us do that. None of us love God perfectly with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. None of us do that perfectly. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're made to love God perfectly. We're made to love people perfectly, and we fail. So our hope is in Jesus, who did love God perfectly. Our hope is in Jesus, who was the perfect man. Sorry about the lights. We've had crazy technology issues today, so the lights might flicker some more, but don't be alarmed. Um, We're called to love God perfectly. We don't. Jesus did. He's our substitute. Not only did he die on the cross for our sins and take the punishment that we deserve, he was punished for what we did wrong. He's our substitute in the negative sense, but positively, he gives us his perfect righteousness through his resurrection, through his perfect obedience. So if you trust in Jesus, that perfect obedience is applied to you. If you're trusting in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees you as his perfect son that loves him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we trust in him, and that is our hope, and that's where our salvation lies. And so there are two mistakes we might make about grace. Um, Jesus is the free gift of grace that saves us, and we can make two mistakes. One mistake is that we might think that we can earn our own salvation by being good enough. I just kind of dismantled that and said, yeah, nobody's really good enough, right? If we think that, basically we're lying or we're shrinking down the law to like a manageable size. The other mistake we make is we think, okay, I can't save myself. Jesus saves me, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. 
Have you ever seen that mistake? And that's a mistake we have to really be guarded about because we're so passionate about teaching God's grace. We're so passionate about teaching that we can't legalistically save ourselves that people might misunderstand, oh, this is a church where you're just saved by God's sweet grace for you, and then you, you just do whatever you want. But that's another mistake. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great summary of this. It says, clearly we're saved by grace, not by our works, not by what we do. We're, we trust in God. It's by faith, by grace. And then we have these works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And we walk that out. And so the way I like to teach this is just that the order is really important. If you go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, or if you go back to the restatement of the Ten Commandments in this section of Deuteronomy, it's very clear. God saves us. Now, because he saves us, we obey. That's the order. It's not, I obey, therefore God has to save me. That's getting it backwards. That's getting it mixed up. God saves us by his grace, therefore we will obey and walk with him obedient. So love him. Even though you know you can't love him perfectly, love him. Even though you know you're going to stumble tomorrow, love him. Keep committing your full heart, mind, soul, and strength to pursue him. You're resting in his grace as you pursue him with everything you've got. Does that make sense? Um, I grabbed a picture of some idols. These are ancient Sumerian idols. Um, This is a different variety than what we typically worship, right? So I've kind of prepared you for this a little bit. We worship different kinds of idols, typically in our culture. Some of you might have Sumerian idols that you're bowing down to in your living room. I would encourage you to get rid of them, okay? I would encourage you to, to throw them away and to love only God, the true God, through Jesus. But we want to back up and say, well, what are the idols that I'm bowing down to? As I said before, it could be powers like relationship or money or job or success. Um, It could be people that have this overwhelming power of your life. It's often good things. Maybe you worship looking good, being a good neighbor. You don't want to stop being a good neighbor, but you want to stop trusting in that as your savior. So the difficulty as followers of Jesus is how do we tear down these idols and say, I'm not going to worship those things. I'm not going to trust in those things. I'm going to trust in God. God alone is God while still doing the things that God's called me to, right? Like you might get bent out of shape with your job and start to turn your job into a God. Well, I mean, maybe you quit your job and get another job. Maybe that'll help, but it's probably going to happen again at the next job, right? Like the answer is not to stop working, The answer is to love God first. Do you see that? As we recommit ourselves to Jesus, as we love him and see him as ultimate and burrow more deeply into his goodness and his trustworthiness, that helps us to sort the other things out. That helps us to make the other things straight in our lives. So name the idols that you have. Begin tearing those down. But remember, the way to really ultimately deal with them is worshiping Jesus first, saying, okay, that, yeah, my job can't save me. It's Jesus. Jesus can save me, right? You don't spend all your time on the job saying, I'll never work again, right? No, you, you got to go to work. Or I'll never have a relationship again because relationships have become an idol. Or I'll never control anything because I have a control problem. Or I'll never be nice again because I've made it an idol to be too nice, you know, right? We, we have this weird idea that we just never do those things again. Well, no, we have to do those things that God's called us to do often good things that we make in idols, but we have to say, but Jesus alone can save me. He alone is the answer. Um, the other thing that I really want us to see from this text before I move on 
is loving God first also helps us to remember that a house built on that foundation will also reflect that reality. Um, And so you can kind of think of it as like concentric circles or fractals is another term from geometry, but uh, it's like this. We know that we love because God first loved us, right? First John 4.19. So we love other people because God loves us first. But we also can back that up and we see that within the Trinity itself. We're born out of love and God loves us out of the overflow of the love that God has for himself within the Trinity. That's one of the most mind-blowing things about the Trinity. If that's a doctrine that you've struggled with and you want to study more, I'd encourage you to read Michael Reeves' book. It's a, a very short book. It's very devotional called Delighting in the Trinity. It's really helpful to kind of understand what that means, but, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves himself. We're born out of this communal love that is within God himself, and then he loves us, and then we love other people, and then it keeps going. And so if you're building a house built on loving God first, there should be a reflection of love in your home. Other people should see, oh, those people love each other, and then that should kind of overflow onto them, Right? But this should even impact your business. Remember, home is more than just a house for just your family. Home and house, biblically, household is another phrase, has this concept of your enterprise, right? Like your business, if you own a business, is your house. If you're a teacher, your classroom is your house in the biblical sense. It's, it's your, your little realm where you are king, Right? It's your sphere of influence. If you're a commander, that's your house. If you own a business, that's your house. And so, does your house reflect love? And again, it doesn't have to be romantic, ushy-gushy love, right? Remember, we're talking biblical love. Sacrificing for the good of others. Does your enterprise, does your house reflect that? And as we love God first, we'll, we'll learn how to do this better. Again, don't just whip yourself, oh, I'm terrible at loving, I give up, right? You know, you go back to, lo- to looking at the love that God has for you, begin loving him, worshiping him, dwelling on him, and that will teach you to love others well. The next point is that we would teach our people, teach your people. So again, here it's talking specifically about children. That's the obvious, clearest sphere of influence of people we are to love. Parents, love your children, right? That's easy. But a lot of us have different forms of family. We're maybe different phases of life, but we all have people to love, right? I would also add that Isaiah 54, 55, and 56 makes it clear that one of the marks of the church, the new covenant, is that we are a people where everyone is productive and fruitful in the sense of having spiritual children. It's fascinating to read it, but if you've never had physical children in the new covenant, you will have children. They will be spiritual children. That's what we see in Isaiah 54, 55, and 56. All of us will have spiritual family in the new covenant. That's a mark of the fruitfulness spiritually of the new covenant. So we all have people to impact. Who are your people? You might have to pray. You might have to spend some time. Okay, God, who are my people? Who am I supposed to impact? Like maybe you're not impacting anybody. Or maybe you're just not thinking about the impact you already have. To say, God, show, show me who they are. Like, who is it the people that work for me? Is it, is it my neighbors? Is, is it cousins? Maybe I need to invest more in them, or maybe I need to invest more over here. But who are the people you want me to, to teach, to influence? Verse 7 describes the process like this. Verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So, uh, when should you teach your people? Anybody? Always. Always. Very good. Very good. Uh, Here's another question. Where should you teach your people? Everywhere. Very good. Y'all are getting this. This is good, right? All times, all places, everywhere you go. I grabbed a picture of someone teaching in a classroom. Normally, this is what we think of teaching. And this one's even kind of casual because he's like, you know, sitting on the desk smiling. But you still got people with desks and laptops. We didn't have laptops when I was in school, but you know, that kind of thing, books and stuff. Um, Teaching goes far beyond a formal classroom, right? So teaching doesn't just mean for teachers. Teaching is passing on what God has taught you. What has God taught you? Are you sharing that with others? Here specifically, it's in context of the Ten Commandments, God's laws. And the Ten Commandments are preceded by the preamble of, I'm the saving God. I alone am the one that you should love and trust, right? So this, to me, is just this summary that continues on in the New Testament of, God alone can save you, so trust him and do what he says. That's it. That's, that's a pretty good summary right there of the spiritual life. Do you trust God alone? Do you trust what he's done for you through Jesus? We have more information now than Moses did, right? We, we now know the mechanics of how God saved us. He saved us by laying our sins on Christ and giving us the perfect obedience and resurrection power of Christ. But still, they were trusting in God and obeying him. Same for us. We're trusting in God, trusting in his salvation, and obeying him, following him. Are you passing that on to people? Now, it can be tricky as we think about this because it's never, um, I don't know, it's never easy, right? I mean, I recognize that. I'm a teacher. I love to teach. The more I teach, the more I love to teach. Uh, but I recognize for a lot of you, you may not have a, a platform. I, I, the church has been nice and given me a microphone and stuff, you know, like, so I get to teach more people. I get to speak more loudly and, and reach more broadly. Um, but you may just have a small sphere of influence. It may just be your home. It may just be your neighbors. It may just be your business. It may just be the people you work with. So how do you do that in a way that's not totally inappropriate, right? Because it's like, you come here, I'm supposed to teach you God's word, right? We, we've all agreed on that. That's what, what we're here for. But your people that work in your business or the people in your classroom or you know, other situations, they're not necessarily signing up for it. So, so what's a good way to do this? Well, let's recognize that there are two extremes. One extreme is that you can be so sensitive that you never say anything at all, right? And we want to be careful of that extreme. Just recognize that more and more our world is getting to a place where it's always weird to talk about God and walking with Him. So just recognize that there's probably going to have to be a line that you're going to cross of awkwardness if you're going to talk about who God is. Just recognize it. So that's one extreme. Thinking you can be, and that's the extreme I wrestle with. I'm, I'm more of a like, let's be natural and you know, not like rock the boat too much. That's kind of my temperament. Like I just want to be real smooth and not like say anything too weird. So I, I lean towards that extreme. There's another extreme, right? Where you're like, well, it's going to be awkward. So I'm just going to be really, really awkward all the time and jam it down people's throats, right? That's the other extreme. Yeah, okay. We don't, we don't want to like beat people over the head with the Bible. That's another extreme as well, right? We don't want to be demanding or pushy or just totally turn people off. But recognize that there's a lot of room in between those two extremes, right? Like, don't be a complete jerk, but don't never say anything. Don't never. I shouldn't have said it that way. (laughs) Don't not say anything. That's still, it's a double negative. I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about. 
beware of those extremes. Walk in the middle of, okay, it's going to be awkward. I'm going to bring it up, even though that's going to be awkward and weird. I'm going to bring it up. But also don't like beat people over the head. Be sensitive. Be kind. One of the best ways to be sensitive, to bring it up and awkwardly bring it up, but be, be sensitive is just asking people questions. That's one of the best ways to do this. To talk about your faith is to ask people questions about their faith. Because honestly, you're not going to really be able to answer their questions about Jesus and about God and about obeying him if you don't really understand them and where they're coming from. So, so ask them questions. You want to get to know them better. Francis Schaeffer said, if I have one hour to talk to somebody about Jesus, I'll spend 55 minutes asking questions. I'll spend five minutes talking about Jesus because that's pretty simple and easy. But once I've asked him questions for 55 minutes, I can, I can kind of make it make more sense for him. So ask questions. That's a really healthy way to do that. Another way for us to apply this is to remember that we are learners. The best way to be a teacher is to be a learner. Are you struggling to obey Jesus? Are you continuing to push away idols, to to obey Jesus in new ways, to pray that his Holy Spirit would empower you to, to follow him bravely even when it's uncomfortable for you? Are you struggling with your own faith? If you're continuing to be a learner, saying, I need, I need new verses to memorize. I need new scriptures to, to own in my heart and to wrestle with. As you're wrestling with your faith, then you're going to have something to share with other people. Then the conversation can be more like, well, I'm, I'm struggling in this area and here's how Jesus is teaching me to trust him in new ways. Paul says so many times in 2 Corinthians His entire ministry is built on a platform of being a fragile, broken human being. We have this treasure in jars of clay. As we obey Jesus in our broken, weak vessels, we have something to pass on to other people. They see the treasure more clearly instead of looking at us and say, look at at how great they are. No, they, they see us struggling to learn and to follow Jesus. And so one of the best ways to think about this Teach when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. One of the best ways to think about this is teachable moments. We look for those moments where it's natural, natural conversation. But often in those teachable moments, you're going to start with asking questions about that teachable moment and the faith of your friends, of your people, whoever they are. Or you're going to express your own struggles and how you're learning to walk with Jesus in those teachable moments. And I think that's a good way to think about this teaching all the time. Okay, last point, reinforce with structure. Reinforce with structure. We see this in verse 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is talking about physical habits of writing the words of God on pieces of paper, on signs, uh, tying them on little leather straps to their arms. You might have seen Jewish people do this where they'll strap the Word of God to themselves with these little uh, leather straps. They'll put it on their head. They'll put Scripture over their doorposts. Those are particular structures by which to hold up the Word of God. And so what I want you to see here is there's a principle at play which is reinforce your own trust in God by adding the structure of, I'm just going to, I'm going to put the word of God around me. One of the best ways that we do it today, we have this wealth of, of music and recorded music, right? So we can, 
sing and listen to Christian music, worship music, hymns that remind us of the faith. Last week, Joey talked about this great new tool that didn't exist when our kids were little called the New City Catechism. And it has question and answer for each week. It has scripture that goes along with the question and answer. And then it has a little song to help you memorize the question and answer. And the way I would describe that is basically a one-point sermon or a, maybe a two-sentence sermon for each week that you're memorizing. And this is just teaching doctrine from the Scripture. That's another structure, right? Music, these kinds of catechisms, just reading the Scripture in your own life. I've been wrestling with uh, this conversation, ongoing conversation I've had with folks um, that are growing up in the non-denominational, kind of non-traditional tradition that we have and being uh, enticed by more traditional traditions. Because a lot of us, especially as culture continues to disintegrate, we're just longing for structure, right? Our, our culture is, is rootless and groundless. And I want to help you to see that, that we actually believe in some, some pretty significant countercultural structure, even in a non-traditional tradition, right? What are some of those things? We believe that we should gather and worship every week and study the Bible. We believe that you should read the Bible on your own. We believe you should memorize the Scripture. You should sing biblical songs to yourself and in church with us. We believe that you should build purposeful relationships where you gather with other human beings to pray together to an unseen God, remind each other that you need Him and that you need to obey His Word. These are really significant structures. Don't overlook them. These are important things. Are other structures helpful? Yeah, we just finished the Christmas season. Are like holidays and special occasions helpful? Yes, those things can be helpful. Yeah, they can be a beautiful way of building extra structure into your home or in your business to remember, celebrate, and talk about Jesus. Yes, those things can be great. But don't throw out the basic structure for the like more exciting structure of, of like more holidays, right? <laughs> Don't say, I need more holidays, or I need more liturgy. So I'm going to throw away the basic structure of of Bible study and prayer and small group relationships. Those structures are foundational in Scripture. I want to add one more thing that is a very kind of clear structure that the book of James gives us. The word religion is used almost never in the Bible. This one place where James says, okay, what's good religion? What's real religion? What's undefiled, pure religion? Well, this is it. It's living morally, and caring for orphans and widows. If you want tradition, if you want structure, if you want liturgy, if you want something more meaty, James says that, that's what you should run to. If you're looking for more fancy religion, well, live morally and care for hurting people. That's, that's what it looks like. So I, I just want to press that even in a non-traditional church like ours, we have all kinds of really important structures that really matter. And I want to pass those on to you and say, take those into your homes, into your businesses, into your classrooms, and reinforce the structure of those places. Posting Scripture, remembering Scripture, using songs, prayers, catechisms, books, groups, times together to reinforce this reality that we're building a culture, a house, a legacy to follow Jesus. Don't don't leave these things behind a new year. We have a Bible reading plan I want to recommend to you at the church. We really designed this for folks that are not used to reading the Bible in a year. So this is a 90% plan. 
and it's got 24 daily readings because we know most people can't make it 31 days of reading their Bible. Um, so you've got 24 daily readings. The narrative portions we've arranged in chronological order. And then every day after reading the narrative portion, there's also an explanatory portion, you know, like a teaching portion of Scripture that you can read. And then there's also a portion that's like uh, Psalms, Proverbs, a more poetic portion to kind of respond from the heart to that portion of Scripture. And so this is a daily reading plan. If you don't have one, if you're new to reading the Bible on your own, I would recommend this to you. There's also many great plans you can find on the YouVersion app. Um, I like to do the chronological reading a lot. My wife's been doing it for like 10 years now. I'll do it on and off different years. Those are a great way to, to read through the Bible. I like to listen to the Bible myself. I recommend that to you. If you're someone who struggles with reading, just physically you know, looking at the page and your mind wandering, I recommend to you listening to Scripture on audio. Or you also might just try memorization, as we talked about, just memorizing a verse, saying, okay, I, I can't read like 10 chapters, but I'll just say this verse over and over again and, and begin meditating on it and learning how to obey that and how to sink that into my heart. These are different ways that you can build these structures into your personal life, but then also spread that out to your home, with your roommate, with your kids, business partners, whoever it may be, wherever it may be appropriate at different levels in these different relationships, reading the scripture together with other people. So important. Um, and it never gets like not awkward. Again, you know, <laughs> it's always going to be awkward. I'm a trained uh, pastor. I was a children's pastor. I was a youth pastor. Whenever I would read the Bible with my kids, it was still kind of awkward, you know, and they didn't always think it was awesome like I thought they should. But, but it was a good structure that we built. It was a rhythm that we built into our lives. And I want to recommend that to you as well. And also, you know, post it, right? As a little kid, I wasn't a believer, but there were a few places where my, my mom had Bible verses on the wall. Like, it haunted me, right? <laughs> like, it, it impacted me. Those kind of things are real. They have a tangible impact on your life. So encourage all those varieties to you. I want to just come back uh, by conclusion, coming back around to remembering as we build our house, and again, the word house, household, home, and scripture means your physical shelter, but it also means the structure of your life, your, your life culture, your impact, your legacy. As we build our houses, Jesus says, build your house on me. He says in Matthew chapter 7, there, there are two ways to build. You can build your house on sand. And when the rains come, your house will be washed away. There will be no legacy. There will be nothing left. Or you can build your house on, Jesus says, my words and as the rest of Scripture plays out, it's very clear that not only is it Jesus' words, but it's Jesus himself. He is the true God that saves us and then tells us, now that you see that I've saved you, you can trust me. So now obey me. Now do what I say because my words are sweet. My commands are good. We can trust him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us we thank you that you give us life. We pray that you would teach us in this new year to build our houses on you. Help us to be conformed more and more to the image of your son. Remind us of your goodness. Help us to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.